I spoke with community members and neighbors to talk about the needs that their neighbors and friends and people were living in their vehicles or they're working and living in their vehicles. You know, there are common misconceptions that I hear in all communities I've lived in just about folks that are unhoused. I think people focus on the cities and forget that this is happening in rural places as well, where maybe the conversations are not as open for many reasons. There was a time when how you identified politically wouldn't end a friendship or end a relationship. And obviously the climate we're in now, that is the case. I think telling stories and uplifting stories and honoring them are what we have to shift us in a more humane direction in our society. We need to humanize folks. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet for all. Our aim is to provoke productive dialogue, elevate community voices, and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. It seems like these days, if you spend even the slightest amount of time tuned into current events and public rhetoric, you become aware of growing divisions. That there is a silent, or sometimes very loud, pressure to pick a side. Narratives and messaging coming from higher levels of public messaging, social media, policymakers, pressuring us to align, to pit us against them. And sometimes this narrative can grow louder than the moral compass inside our own head. Then we start to think that everyone must be thinking this way. So yeah, we better pick a side too. Dig our heels in and spend more time shaking our fist that our team is right than actually having constructive conversations with others who hold differing views or seeking out firsthand truths from the group having stones thrown at them. And you bet this comes from all sides of the political spectrum. I hear about groups in the legislature that voted for a discriminatory bill but then turned to their colleagues in private and admitted that they know it wasn't right. It's as if our individual voices, the stories of the people, are being drowned out by a larger pressuring narrative to look at these concepts as faceless enemies, making it easier to push them down. Today's episode touches on a lot of things, and I hope that one of them sparks an answer for you on how we can start to do this how we can humanize one another again, individualize the real stories behind our actions and bandwagons. Today's conversation touches on friendship and respecting the sacredness of a connected community and the connection to place. It's about sharing story, removing stigmas and normalizing the hard conversations and empowering us to allow human connection to rise above political divides. Today, we hear from Marissa Hackett, who reached out to me a few months ago, interested in sharing her story, to help others, to inspire folks to have their eyes wide open when looking at the needs of their community, and because she wanted to share her deeper love for Montana, the people, and the place. Full disclosure, I did know Marissa before she reached out to me. I had the good fortune of meeting her at a gathering for women who were in or looking to be in leadership roles that took place in 2019 in Southwest Montana. The little I was able to learn about her, I could tell she was warm, radiantly so. 
She wanted those around her to feel comfortable. She seemed to be a vibrant ray of joy and also not afraid to touch on the tougher topics. We unfortunately hadn't connected in person since as she moved to Washington shortly after this, but we kept on one another's radars in the social media kind of way. When Marissa reached out to me, I was grateful to her for trusting me to help share some of her story. There were so many aspects of her life and experience that touched on things that we need to be discussing in the open more often. Not only her connection to landscape and community, but her work with vulnerable populations in rural Montana. The rampant growth of political divisions, blinding us from seeing our human connections. Her own experience growing up in what she calls a cult, which she will touch on, and the power in sharing story. With Stories for Action, I always make a strong point to be nonpartisan and focus more on connection to community and place. I'll be the first person to name faults and strengths and nuances of all sides. Marissa agreed that she also wanted to come at this in a very nonpartisan way. So while there are mentions of political parties, I think you'll see the context of the conversation and its goal is to literally do the opposite of pitting one against the other, and rather to allow ourselves to come together as people sharing this world and defy the noise of division that bombards us. So I encourage you to put aside any assumptions on what you think this conversation may entail. If you have love for the place you call home, love for your family, tough things you're navigating, past, present, and future, or a curiosity for the human experience, I think you'll find at least one point of connection in this conversation. Marissa Hackett grew up in a large family as one of six children and has lived all over the U.S., including California, Oregon, Arizona, Massachusetts, Montana, and now Washington. She enjoys being deeply engaged in community leadership wherever she lives. Marissa lived in Montana for six and a half years and says she loves this state deeply and will always consider Livingston and Park County one of her home communities. During her time in Montana, Marissa enjoyed working in various community settings, including at the Human Resource Development Center as the operations manager of the Livingston office. She also proudly volunteered as a big sister with Big Brothers Big Sisters. She spent nine months engaging in the MSU Extension Leadership 49 program, where she developed an even deeper appreciation and understanding of the wide variety of beauty and people in Park County. Marissa moved to Seattle in late 2019 to live closer to her family, and she's currently pursuing a master's degree in marriage and family therapy at Antioch University. She lives with her husband, Aaron, and is a proud auntie, sister, sister-in-law, daughter, niece, cousin, godmother, friend, and community member. And wherever she is, she spends as much time as possible outdoors. Marissa begins by expressing the scope of her relationship with Montana, the landscape, the people, all that makes up the place, and how it became so embedded in her heart and spirit. Marissa's lived in a handful of places in her life, but she says Montana still rises to the top when she sees where she feels her home is. During her time living here, she went through many traumatic and tragic events in her life, including loss. So she does want to give a heads up to listeners who may not be in a space to hear some tough stories. Marissa does say that these stories are rooted in hopefulness, and her hopefulness comes out of her journey that led her to Montana. Because 
I was a, a black woman in my 30s and 40s living in Montana. I've been asked this question quite a few times. Um, it's not a place that there are a lot of black folks. So it is a question that I love answering. So thank you for asking about my journey. When I was living in the state of Arizona after college um, in my 20s, I met a group of folks that happened to be from Montana. I worked with someone that went to school in Missoula and I was working at Arizona State University at the time. We worked in an office together and this person talked a lot about Montana, like most people that spent some time in Montana. And she went to the local Montana bar in Scottsdale, Phoenix area to the Cat Grizz weekend to, to watch the Cat Grizz game. So she went and met another group of Montana friends at that game that we all started hanging out with. And this was almost 20 years ago. So I met a group of friends that all had connection to Montana. And I ended up falling in love with one of those people. And after living in Arizona for six years and then Santa Cruz for six years, we finally we got married in that time and moved to Bozeman in 2013. Prior to moving, my first time visiting Montana was when my future in-laws were um, living in, in Big Timber. So Big Timber is actually the first town that I visited Montana. Um, so the Grand is a place that I hold very special there in Big Timber. Unfortunately, my relationship um, ended shortly after moving to Bozeman, that kind of stops you in your tracks. But my natural inclination was not to move back to Santa Cruz, California, which is where we were living prior to Bozeman, not to move back to Oregon, where I went to college or back to Arizona. I had already fallen in love with Montana. And that short time that I was there, while my marriage was ending, I still could look up at the Bridgers and find peace and calmness. I could just jet up to Pete's Hill and think everything was going to be okay. That was my introduction to Montana. And in, simultaneously, while that was happening, I met a group of friends that were my lifeline during that time. So community and the mountains, I always say, is what kept me. Um, I met some amazing folks that were going through their own life transitions that were um, really empathetic to what I was experiencing. And we were all pretty different folks for to be living in Bozeman at that time. I was a Black woman. One of my friends was a trans person. One of my friends was also another young person going through a divorce. So we were um, just found each other and really connected and found community. So that's what got, got me to Montana. And then what kept me was the community, the friends that I made and the mountains. Marissa says that after about two years living in Bozeman, she had a professional and personal opportunity to move to Livingston, a town much smaller than Bozeman, but only half hour drive away. Livingston has always been an intersection of many things, and that intersection continues to expand. It's a town that supports a region of ranching and farming, avid anglers, outdoor recreation, a variety of small businesses, modest income folks, wealthy retirees, multi-generation folks, newcomers, blue-collar, creatives, and everything in between. 
Livingston also sits less than an hour's drive from the north entrance to Yellowstone National Park. Marissa says even before moving, she developed a deep connection with Livingston, the Yellowstone River, and the Lamar Valley in the park, so the move felt right to her. She began working at the Office of Public Assistance, but shortly after, her mother's health began declining quicker than her family expected. My mother was suffering from congestive heart failure, and I just sort of could read that um, her health was declining. So I sort of unexpectedly resigned from the position at the Office of Public Assistance so that I could go back to Oregon to be with my mother. I lost my mother during that summer um, in July of 2016. And I was in Oregon that entire summer with her. And I had the honor of being with her throughout her last couple of months of life. And my father was grieving all of us. My family was grieving the loss of our matriarch, the matriarch of our family at 68 years old, sort of unexpectedly after a surgery we thought was successful. So pretty um, shocking, unexpected experience. I was at another sort of crossroads and my home was still Montana. So I went back to my community in Livingston because the river, the mountains, the people were there. That was my safest community. I, I knew that I, okay, I survived a divorce there. I could survive the loss of my mom, not just my mom. She was my best friend. She died in my arms. It was um, one of those world shaker losses. I had to get back to Montana as my refuge. When Marissa did return home to Livingston, she began working with HRDC, the Human Resource Development Council, which holds a mission to instill hope, develop resources, design solutions, and change lives in southwest Montana. They work with communities as far east as Three Forks, west to Bozeman, Livingston, up to White Sulphur Springs, and south to Gardner in West Yellowstone, as well as the places in between. They have over 50 program initiatives and serve all ages from youth to elderly, supporting folks who need a place to sleep, who are first-time homebuyers, families in need of ongoing housing assistance, people who need one meal or ongoing nutrition assistance, people who need help with their utility bills, and any other emergency needs that come up in the communities. A lot of my time in Montana was sort of healing through serving the community and finding a home within HRDC to serve vulnerable folks in the community was definitely a way while I was grieving the loss of my mom and my best friend. And it was very cathartic, but difficult. But it, for me, it was healing to get to know Livingston in such an, in Park County in such an intimate way and get to serve it in such a unique and intimate way as I did while I was suffering the loss of my mom. I asked Marissa if her mom ever had a chance to visit her in Montana. She says, unfortunately, no, since her mother was already pretty sick in the time that Marissa lived here. She never had a chance to visit, although she would have loved it because she taught me to love the outdoors. She was the mom that, without even telling the family, would sign up for a ladies' river float trip on the Rogue River. And then next thing we know, we see pictures of her like, there's mom on a river trip or what? She just was the advent- very adventurous. So she would have loved Montana. But I felt like 
I was only there because of her. Like I could only be in that space because of her. So I feel like, like you said, I do feel like she's always with me for sure. So, I mean, I grew up active and finding peace in nature, which is why connecting to Montana and within, it was very natural to me. And it, it makes sense considering how I grew up and what my mom introduced to me. I asked Marissa about her work with HRDC, what that work entailed, and about the relationships she built within the communities that she worked with, which included all of Park County and occasionally neighboring Marr County. My work with HRDC offered me an opportunity to work with the most vulnerable folks in the community that were unhoused or facing becoming unhoused folks that were experiencing food insecurity and a myriad of other things that were caused that caused suffering and just barriers to living a healthy and happy life. So I worked directly with clients and customers walking in that were often in crisis, either already living out of their vehicles or in a tent or facing that shortly in that capacity. The role was a service navigator Right, help folks just piece piece together resources to help limit the challenges that come with living unhoused. And then I also worked, you know, in leadership within the organization. The core mission is community-driven work. What does the specific community need? And that comes from directly from the folks that are suffering the most. So I had the pleasure of sort of being on the ground floor and also translating that to leadership, like here are the needs and helping gather, you know, the needs of the community because of what I was seeing day to day as that front frontline person also working directly with leadership. So it was a great opportunity to see those connections and the disconnects as well and make sure that, you know, with our, within our own leadership and the leadership of the community whose, whose voices needed to be heard were being heard. And that was always my role is to advocate for the folks that were most vulnerable. And a lot of times when you're in those vulnerable spaces, you don't have the capacity to advocate for your best needs. Someone else that has more space and agency needs to do that. So that's what I had the honor of doing. And I got to meet folks in the community that maybe folks that um, in other spectrum of socioeconomic categories may not have the opportunity to meet. So I feel like I was a connector in a lot of ways, I guess is the best way to put it. And and then also my work was collaborating with other entities. Also, one of my main projects that I was a part of was opening Livingston's um, seasonal warming center. Just that was completely community driven. So helping that community driven effort come to light. We had a community collaborative group and we consisted of folks from just a myriad of entities, including HRDC, the local hospital, some faith leaders, other nonprofits. And we would come together as a group on various community conversations, but particularly what one of the needs that came out of this group was needing a seasonal warming center due to the folks that were experiencing homelessness or unhoused during the coldest months of the year. Um, There wasn't, it wasn't logistically possible for those folks to get over to the Bozeman Warming Center that HRDC already has been running for many years. But so that's just one project that I like to reference that 
was born out of folks coming together and a p- big part of what I did, I, I, I spoke with donors and community members and neighbors, anyone I could, quite frankly, to talk about the needs that their, that their neighbors and friends and people were living in their vehicles or they're working and living in their vehicles. And, you know, they're common misconceptions that I hear in all communities I've lived in just about folks that are un- unhoused, that folks are choosing to be homeless. That is a myth. All it takes is just knowing the stories of folks that have lived um, in their vehicle, in their vans, with their families, living in ho- hotel to hotel, sleeping in our in our warming center, being evicted, whatever the case might be. These folks all ha- had stories that I was had the honor of hearing, that they t- trusted me to sit sit with and help them navigate. And that takes tremendous strength to walk into a nonprofit and tell your story probably the most of the most difficult time in your life. My role, a lot of that was telling the stories of the folks that we were seeing every day walking in the, the store, the variety of folks that were experiencing this these housing challenges. And like every community, the cost of living outpaced the wages in the community. So that was a big challenge that I was seeing. Just the inventory of affordable housing, subsidized housing. I mean, there's just, you know, and I'm obviously speaking from the time frame that I was um, living there and that ended at the end of 2019. But those were the primary projects that I worked on, working directly with folks and helping them navigate different resources and getting them connected to different resources and then communicating what was occurring on the ground floor to stakeholders in the community, whether that's different leadership, donors. It took a spectrum of capacity to sort of have those different conversations, but it was a really amazing way to get to know the community. Yeah, and all those different levels of relationships that you're able to establish. And like you said, it, you know, even in the smallest, most, you know, quote, tight-knit communities, I think if you're separated from that by a certain point through your socioeconomic status, you are very disconnected from the realities of that. And just, you know, the things that you were sharing, there's assumptions on many levels of you know, the realities of what got someone to that point. I think like during COVID, a lot of that people got a lot closer connected to the realities of it. Just to elaborate a little on this, I think for many, it can be an eye-opener to learn just how many of us, if we aren't already needing support, are constantly riding a thin margin of needing that support. Before COVID hit the world, almost 60% of Americans said that if they were faced with an unexpected expense of $500, such as a car repair or a doctor visit, they wouldn't be able to cover it. Or if they had to cover it, they wouldn't be able to pay their rent that month. That's 60% of folks in the U.S. That was before COVID, before massive layoffs and supply chain upsets and spikes in inflation. It's not an other problem. And many of us know all too well what that looks like to have financial stress staring at us in the face. For some, it may be easy to separate oneself a great deal from those who are in need of support. And this separation prevents us from having our eyes wide open to the needs right in our own community, right in our neighborhood, our schools. And to dehumanize that need, cast it aside, 
deny its prevalence or see it as something that is a product of urban areas. When we look at the facts, though, the stories of individuals, we learn that this is happening all around us, including in the most rural of places. In smaller towns, maybe for some it's not as evident, and folks may work to keep these needs hidden from their community, or those folks make their way to places that do have support, typically more urban areas. The reality is, is that right now, one in 10 Montanans are chronically hungry, unable to afford sufficient food and nutrition. Food banks in the state are reporting growing numbers of parents coming in, saying they're sacrificing their own meals so that their kids don't have to go to bed hungry. Missed rent payments leads to evictions and folks that are left without a place to go. And for those who become unhoused, a downward spiral can accelerate, putting them at risk of exposure to drugs, violence, and health complications, or making it difficult to have conditions to keep up their jobs or prepare for job interviews, and find ways to elevate out of the circumstance. Since these are our community members, our neighbors, even our youth, who determine the well-being of our state's future, what is being done to prevent these circumstances, to lift up our neighbors, and why is the collective we so inclined to other or shame them? In Montana's legislative session this last spring, there was a bill proposed by Republican Congressman Marty Malone of Prey, Montana, which is just south of Livingston. This bill would create a farm-to-food bank grant program, benefiting local agricultural producers by giving them increased local markets and bringing more local fresh food to Montana's food banks. The bill had bipartisan support in the House, with an 81-18 to vote, but it died in the Senate. Last month, Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services opted out of $10 million of federal funding that would have paid for children's meals during the school year and the summer. This decision brings the total amount of federal dollars to address hunger that the state has left on the table to more than $135 million since 2021. Last year, the state decided not to apply for food assistance for children on free and reduced lunch. An analysis done by the Montana Budget and Policy Center shows rapidly increasing demand for food assistance statewide, including rural areas. This includes one in eight Montana children being food insecure. But the analysis also noted that a pattern has emerged in Montana of politicians foregoing food assistance to children. It is a reflection of disconnect, not only between community members and the needs around them, but of policy leaders and the needs of their constituents. And both may be influenced to turn a blind eye and deny the reality because there's a stronger narrative saying your team doesn't support these things. When in fact, these programs have strong bipartisan support on the ground in all pockets of the state. The results of a statewide needs assessment that was released in October of 2022 and conducted by the Montana State University Extension showed that across the state of Montana, the top three needs are affordable housing, affordable food, and mental health services. Of course, there are lots of positive efforts on these fronts happening across the state, and a lot on a very community level. Something on a larger regional and national scale that I just learned about that I encourage you to follow along in the progress of, and we'll put a link to it in this episode's show notes, 
is Montana State University Extension and the Montana Department of Agriculture just announced that they're partners in a $30 million U.S. Department of Agriculture effort to establish a regional center to create opportunities for both food producers and to increase food security. The center, which will be called Northwest and Rocky Mountain Food Business Center, is co-led by Colorado State University and Oregon State University and will provide resources and support for small to mid-level farm, ranch, and food businesses, as well as aiming to improve the overall food supply chains on a regional level. You can find out more about this effort at nwrockymountainregionalfoodbusiness.com, and we'll put that link in this episode's show notes. Now back to my conversation with Marissa. What we're seeing nationwide, um, and very much so in places like Livingston and Montana, um, of housing prices going crazy, which is a whole other thing we could get into, um, that people can be working multiple jobs and still have to be living in their vehicle or even they might not have a vehicle. So it just shows you how, you know, everyone's story is so different and also probably so relatable um, more often than not. And that we kind of create these stigmas around being in those situations. And also I think the assumption that homelessness is only experienced in more larger population centers, right? where it's very much so in, in all corners, all places, rural communities as well. And as you saw, those situations were very much a reality there. Yes, absolutely. And I, having moved from Livingston and doing the work that I did and then moving to Seattle, where there's, you know, famously a chronic problem with homelessness. And I've found myself calling into city council meetings here in the county because yes, the challenges that I'm seeing here are very parallel to what I saw in Livingston and my experience has translated and the gaps I'm seeing are similar. People don't, there's so many assumptions that are being made about the folks that are experiencing homelessness. And it's, I get passionate about it because I don't think those folks that are in those vulnerable situations are in a space to say, Hey, I have a story. You know, I have a mom, I have a grandma, I have a sister that loves me and cares about me and we need to humanize folks. And that's where I think people focus on the cities. And like you're saying, forget that this is happening in rural places as well, where maybe the conversations are, not as open for many reasons and what i'm seeing is though there's so there's so much that's actually relatable to folks in regards to the what we're seeing the most vulnerable folks experience in regards to housing insecurity and the way folks in leadership have a bit of a disconnect from what the needs are we need to get people indoors in homes that's it i mean we need to start there and that's why as a huge advocate of just at least starting with the warming center in Livingston so that people deserve the dignity of having an indoor place to sleep at night, period. I feel like there is a huge disconnect from the homeless challenge that's happening in small towns like Livingston. And it was because I got to work on the ground floor, I got to see it so intimately and learn how how many folks didn't realize that was happening. And a note here on the reality in Montana Having folks unhoused has always been occurring, from small towns to our bigger cities. But Montana is seeing the trend that the entire globe is experiencing, the cost of housing rapidly exceeding the local incomes. 
In the last decade, and especially since COVID, when folks flocked out of the lockdowns of urban centers around the country and remote working became commonplace, Montana has experienced a rapid influx of folks from other states, some of which are making wages much higher than Montana's average income or are wealthy and retired. At the same time, you have investment firms tied to Wall Street buying up real estate from afar as a solid means of investment for their clients. Those things, combined with many other nuanced elements, have led to rapid spikes in the cost of housing and property taxes, making rent or home ownership far from a possibility for even middle-class residents. And just to reiterate, this concept of housing unaffordability is happening across the country, and even internationally. And on top of all that, you have just general population increases and a trend in climate change migration. Folks from around the U.S. coming here from areas that are directly hit by increased hurricanes, floods, droughts, and wildfires. Though it's no secret that Montana has been experiencing full force of climate impacts between floods, droughts, forest fires, and more. All of these combined pressures and many other elements of low wages, gaps in fortifying public education, lack of access to mental health care or child care, increased cost of food, folks still recovering from economic hits of the pandemic, increased medical costs, the list goes on. All contribute to a large percentage of the population in both rural and urban settings who are piecing things together and finding it impossible to get ahead financially, no matter their work qualifications or even if they're currently employed. Now back to my conversation with Marissa. And you had mentioned um, on the phone, you know, that you got this inclination that the folks you were working with maybe had this connection that, I don't know if instantly, but were able to get to a level of vulnerability when communicating with you and working with you, if you want to say on that of just what you observed in that space. Yeah. As I reflected on my time working directly with folks in crisis in Livingston, first, I mean, I will acknowledge I have um, a background in working with folks in crisis, just in case management. So I do have skills along with you know, an education related to this, but there was another level of connection that I was able to make with a lot of folks that I met with. And some of it was explicitly talked about or indicated by some of the folks that I worked with. And some of it was just kind of a sense, like I mentioned, I'm a Black woman and existing in Livingston with that identity makes me stand out. So when folks would come in um, as a Black person, and this is just some insight, it's natural you never really know if this is someone is that's going to receive you in a positive way or not. It's and, and that can be, is this person have a conscious or an unconscious prejudice or not? And it, I have had overt racist experiences in Montana. I have been called the N-word in Montana. So while I do consider it home and, and I've had lots of positive experiences there, I just want to frame what I'm about to say with hatred can be spewed anywhere. And it has been um, in other places I've lived, but Montana wasn't immune to that. But what I experienced with working folks in those vulnerable scenarios that were expected to share with me their vulnerable 
stories. I'll just quote someone that I worked with. They said, my my life has been really hard. You know what I mean. You get what I mean as a sister is what someone said. So there's a lot of that had a lot of layers and I just kept things rolling with the intake that I was doing. But that just got me kind of studying my influence as a Black person working with folks in crisis. And it led to me realizing sort of a lot of things, people knowing that as a Black person, I've probably experienced some shitty things in this world because that's just the, the structure of our society and the caste system, if you know that terminology of where I ended up as a Black woman in our society. So it's likely that I've probably experienced some prejudice or some racism or some discrimination, and I have. And it did enable me to have way more empathy for the clients that I worked with in Montana. And I think the clients that came in knew that. They felt that I probably have experienced unthinkable things that were out of my control, like they were probably experiencing, which enabled there to be this level of comfort in how we work together. I used my identity to connect with folks. One example that really was special to me was someone that came in with paraphernalia on them identifying with the political party that I don't identify with. And I say that because of our polarization right now. And that's why I mentioned that because there is so much polarization that had nothing to do with the work that I did. And I think it was so much deeper and there was such a different connection because of my racial identity and my existence in that community and the level of connection that I was able to make with folks that were experiencing vulnerable times in their lives because of the perceived vulnerability likely experienced. Whether it was accurate or not, I still could see that there was a level of comfort that came from seeing me that I was in that community probably meant that I experienced some differentness, some something different or something that maybe wasn't always pleasurable, whether it was in the community or as just existing in this world. But there seemed to be an understanding there that if they disclose things to me that I would have empathy and and get it and not be judgmental, which is is how I worked. That is the space that I held. And that is as a leader in that office, that was the expectation that anyone that walked in the door was treated with respect and dignity, no matter what. I asked Marissa about work she also did through HRDC in the town of White Sulphur Springs, which is an hour north and much more rural than Livingston. While Livingston has a population of about 8,000, White Sulphur Springs has a resident population of about 1,000. Marissa said HRDC serves Gallatin, Park, and Marr County, of which White Sulphur Springs is the county seat. And as Marissa was an organizational leader in Park County, she would travel to White Sulphur Springs throughout the year to either meet with people one-on-one or bring out food boxes. I love White Sulphur Springs. And also, it's interesting, I actually have, um, I've been reading this book about the life of Rose B. Gordon. For those that don't know her, look her up. She's this Black woman that lived in White Sulphur Springs. Um, there's a book by Michael K. Johnson about her life. It's a, a Black Woman's West is the name of the book. It's all about her and her family's life in early years, White Sulphur Springs. So look it up, look her up. Um, Rose B. Gordon, A Black Woman's West. I, I learned of that book because I have a friend of mine that gifted me a membership to the Montana Historical Society. So I get monthly newsletters and calendars and stuff. And 
I write about that book in one of the newsletters. So a little plug there for the historical society. That's yeah. great. You're so I more connected to, to this state yeah. than 80% of folks here. So. Well, I do. It, yeah, I mean, the love is real. And when I love a state, I do try to know as much as I can about it. So there's a lot that I don't know when I do. And I also love history. And <laughs> I'll check that out. But I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about, you know, and probably also in Livingston, but in White Sulphur Springs um, and smaller communities, did you have interactions where you maybe, you know, not that it was directly a topic of conversation, but where you knew that folks might be more conservative or right-leaning um, and maybe communicated things to you of stigmas that they knew existed um, in the state or in their political party about mm-hmm. needing support mm-hmm. um, either for housing or groceries of just what the reality that was of some of those conversations you had around that. Yeah, absolutely. That was something that I realized quickly in the work that I did that I um, had to be super mind- mindful and respectful of and and build empathy for. I'm also, I identify as a progressive I long for society to offer the most to all. Um, So that's, I lean for supporting social services because I have seen enough disparities in the need. So I just like to preface that. And I'm very open about my, my positions. With that said, I grew up in a family that had varying political beliefs, um, including very conservative beliefs. So I understand deeply a lot of the stigma associated with government benefits and needing them and kind of the narrative surrounding those needs and conservative circles and media and so on and so forth. So yes, I saw folks that were, I worked with folks that were directly impacted by that um, expectation of being resistant to needing social services. And one example that comes to mind when you get, when I think of Mar County, there were folks in also in Park County that were in need of SNAP benefits, which is commonly known as food stamps. So money to buy food, basically. And there was a gap in some paperwork, which caused a delay. And this person had kept the fact that they were receiving these benefits secret from people in their community because of the stigma associated with it and reached HRDC for help with paperwork, which is something that I would like to talk about, just kind of the administrative burden for folks that are trying to navigate different social services. But this person was in tears and someone that traditionally would not support social services yet had signed up out of a need and directly expressed feeling conflicted and in tears about needing these, but politically not supporting their, their existence and their shame for needing them. And that's was really difficult to process that folks are voting against their own interests because of the expectation to be aligned. I mean, you know, that, you know, I don't want to, for what, you know, there is that expectation for, for various reasons that, that folks choose to do that. But I saw it repeatedly. And I think that there's many layers that contribute to folks, you know, feeling shame in Park County and Mar County. What I saw was there's particular stigma surrounding needing, whether it's food assistance, cash assistance, rental assistance, heating assistance, 
And I always just sort of gauged where folks, a, a lot of folks would come into the office feeling a lot of shame. And that's understandable and expected because of just the culture and society we live in. But that was exacerbated, especially during the political time that I lived in Montana, 2013 through 2019. So there were a lot of contentious periods with federal funded state programs like Medicaid. There's just a lot of disparities on so, so many levels politically that I think directly affect a state like Montana that is leaning towards reducing social services when there's a high need for it because of the leadership. When I lived there, there was a different structure of leadership, but it was starting to shift as, as I was leaving. And, and as I still kind of track, you know, I can see that I worry about the gaps between the needs versus what leadership sees as the need. For sure. And, and realistically, probably growing needs, right? With cost of groceries, housing, all the things that that need is, that gap is probably increasing. You know, do you have an example? Because sometimes it's easier for folks to visualize when something's not there than to see the value when it is there. If you have anything to mention about what you were seeing and stories from folks of what that meant to have the services that HRDC and others were providing, you know, just how critical in some of those cases, the existence of you, your work, your organization was in some instances. Well, I think bigger picture, and I will, I will narrow it down. I'm just going to, there's so many stories, so I'll have to think of one, but sort of ultimately what myself and the team, my team, I mean, we were a team, but we're a small office, but community is what I'm getting at. We refer to the folks we work with at HRDC as customers that we were surveying and customers would loved to walk in and just visit with us. So I'm talking about outside of the the crisis moments, but the kind of bigger picture is that we were a place of community for people that didn't have family to call. Maybe their family had already had given up on them or whatever. I mean, just, or they, they didn't grow up with family. They were an orphan or the stories were endless, but folks and anyone that worked with me or when I would train new staff, it was always, we create a welcoming environment. You walk in and the environment is welcoming. So folks always knew they could come back for services, no matter what, because of the warm community we created, we had to obviously create boundaries and make sure that everyone safety and and safety for staff and customers was a priority always. But warmth and openness was something that uh, the tone that I always set. So people could felt comfortable telling us their stories because it was a part of the process to learn stories so that we could um, put together resources to best address what was um, going on in their lives. So one story that I think about, I'll talk about my friend Ralph, who I was just checking and with my former colleague about to see how he was doing. And Ralph, with permission, was one of our feature stories um, in one of our impact reports. So I have permission to talk about a little bit about Ralph's story, but we became friends. I met Ralph before he even moved back home to Livingston he was living out of state, but uh, at 80-ish years old, needed to move back to Livingston. 
after just kind of running out of familial support and resources, he got connected with HRDC because he didn't really have anywhere else to, anywhere to move home to. He's like, he thought Livingston still had just a plethora of housing and that with his social security and VA benefits, he could move back and, and find a place to his shock. There weren't just $400 apartments anymore to move right on into that he could afford on his very, very fixed income. So Ralph was having to leave his other state, was on his way to Montana and back home, what he thought was home, but was planning to arrive and just sleep in his vehicle. 80-year-old veteran. There weren't, he didn't know who else to call. So somehow someone said, you got to call HRDC. So he drove out and showed up. So we just got in mode. We we enacted our resources, got him in a hotel, got him on all the wait, wait lists. And I say got him, I use that term because what, and I mentioned this earlier, one of the biggest, most significant barriers, and I think there's folks that even write about this now, are, is the administrative barrier to accessing resources, the paperwork. Actually, Ralph is someone that sat in our office for eight hours on the public assistance helpline waiting to sort out one of his public assistance programs. So these were the things that we got got to do at HRDC, set up a comfy spot for Ralph to come sit. And we would talk with the representative because Ralph had a hearing impairment. So speaking to a representative on a phone, sitting for eight hours, that requires someone to kind of be there with you. And we would walk along folks during their journeys, essentially, during the most vulnerable times in their lives. Ralph lived in a hotel for quite some time and finally was able to get into subsidized housing in one of the HRDC buildings um, in Livingston. So we were bringing meals from the food resource center to Ralph's hotel room so he could warm up, have hot meals to warm up. And, and then, you know, we're dropping off just different uh, toiletries that he might, might need. So it just, it really took a village or if he needed transportation, coordinating um, a ride somewhere. And that would take, you know, that's one person and that's working with different entities paying for the covering we had resources to pay to pay for the hotel and the multitude of paperwork to get on subsidized housing wait lists and getting on food assistance in the state Medicaid. A lot of folks, because of the burden of the paperwork, just give up and say, even though those resources are out there, it takes a lot of wherewithal and focus and tenacity and gathering of documents sometimes that a lot of folks that are in crisis don't have birth certificates and having an address and phone number. So we provided a permanent address for folks. If folks needed to sign up for something and needed to have their mail be delivered somewhere, um, folks could have their mail uh, sent to the HRDC office. Another scenario that comes to mind because it's with another organization that I worked with quite a bit, which is Aspen, which is the abuse support net um, organization for folks that are fleeing intimate partner violence and need temporary shelter related to intimate partner violence. And I would have folks um, walk into the office that would, like one example that comes to mind, someone walked in with a child and said, oh, we have X amount of time while my partner is gone. I'm in a dangerous relationship and I need somewhere to go. I don't have anywhere to go. 
that's happened multiple times, different scenarios where people were fleeing intimate partner scenarios, dangerous situations and didn't have anywhere else to go. So we had a collaborative process where we would connect with other organizations that either could better serve the needs than HRDC, or we would work together to put together funding. If the shelter was full, we'd find a, try to find a hotel or whatever the case might be. So it was just, if HRDC couldn't address the issue, we would service navigate. We would try to navigate and connect with other organizations. So that's, so folks that were in those scenarios was not un, uncommon. Yeah. Those are two examples. So Ralph, so, so seniors, I just know in Livingston, the senior population is a bit higher than what maybe folks saw in Bozeman. And that was for me personally, seeing the population of, of older adults experiencing homelessness was very, very challenging. And I think there's a real big disconnect with leadership, realizing that there are folks that are on fixed incomes that aren't surviving when there's different expenses that come up. And I would help folks with their paperwork and see their incomes. That's social security. I don't know if, people, if everyone knows that. These are people that don't have anything else but $600 a month. And these, this is why we want and why I'm an advocate of social services and expanding healthcare. And because I saw it on the ground floor in Montana, how not having access to vision care or dental care or hearing care affects your day-to-day. Those are the folks that I saw. I would help pay for folks that needed extreme dental care. So I'm working with community health health partners. That was another partner that I worked with quite a bit because of the connections of all the things in someone's life. I, the stories I heard were about it all, you know, from, from food insecurity to intimate partner violence to losses of connections with family. That was another thing that we would do as an office is try to, with consent, working with, with, with customers to see if there were any family or friends that, that they could possibly reconnect with. So there were times where I would call someone out of state to say, I'm here working with your family member who's experiencing homelessness. And they mentioned that you might be someone that they could work work with or that they could maybe find support through. Is that something you're willing to reignite? So I could sometimes bridge those relationships or reignite relationships. I got to be like the cheerleader, the support, the connector, the navigator, and the voice for, for folks that were otherwise wouldn't have had a, really a lot of places to go. Folks would either end up in the emergency room or involved with law enforcement and then the faith community, several pastors that would show up and help. And that's what I saw in Livingston. It, it was about serving the people that needed help and kind of hearing the individual story and tailoring their needs package, if you will, for whatever their needs were. That's the whole system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you navigate that as it comes. But shows you how interconnected it is. And it seems like the partners that you, you, you know, the network that you worked with, with other organizations and entities in Livingston, that it was just like, yeah, like, this is what we do. Like this person needs this. Cool. And of course, you know, those were established entities that, that worked in that space, but it touches on a dynamic that I see in Montana, that it's a common 
concept and understanding, you know, a lot of Montanans are very individualistic and we can do it ourselves and like we're Mm -hmm. self-sufficient. But then also a very common known dynamic that's across the board a lot of the time in Montana is that we're very community centric and, you know, supporting local businesses, supporting mom and pop, supporting local foods, local farmers across the state, right? It's something we see echoed a lot. And so it's just like those two concepts that to me, it's unfortunate that they have become so separated that it it can be thought in some people's minds as one or the other. But the, the work that you're involved in, that is that, you know, support your local farmer, also support that person who's having a tough time in your community, right? It's about lifting up the people within your community, no matter where they are and what circumstance they're in, right? And and yes, we're self-sufficient and, and we also look out for our own, right? We look out for our communities and just how much that is a part of it. And it's unfortunate that those things have been disconnected. If you talk to somebody like yourself who was directly connected in that work and is directly connected, it's clear the connection, right? But what the problem is, is that most of our narrative comes from a higher level space and conversation that has no grounding in the reality of the situation. I don't know if that made any sense. No, I was going to say that was, (laughs) yes, that was beautifully put. And I, and and I will say in that it it just quickly, it's a testament to why I loved how Livingston and Park Canada responded to the proposal of opening the seasonal warming center. Once the stories are out and the need was indicated, the community showed up from $5 checks to much larger checks to, call we had to hold hold off calls on donations so we could figure out where to put everything so absolutely do communities in montana want to take care of each other i think there's just unfortunately not enough like just to echo your sentiment yeah once folks know and we create an opportunity and platform to tell the stories that i think heck yeah people will show up i also was a big with big big brothers big sisters and just telling people that there were kids on the wait, wait list that people didn't know. And the next thing you know, you know, oh, people were expressing an interest in maybe joining. And that's why I've, you know, op- opted to be vulnerable, tell my story, tell uh, talk about my work because of the hope of maybe, you know, it inspiring other community work and just trust the stories that are out there to help drive the work that people do. I shift gears a little bit here and ask Marissa to speak to elements of her upbringing and how it shapes her outlook, her work, and her want to break down barriers that are created by higher level messaging and influence, which can prevent us from humanizing one another, blind us with fear and hate, and actually cause us to turn against others who may be our own community members for simply having different views or values. I've had a unique upbringing, at least I consider it pretty unique, and it's given me a unique um, outlook on life. When I was born in the late 70s, my family was involved in an organization that I um, consider a cult that was led by a person named Roy Masters, who was a prominent talk show radio host in the 70s and 80s and beyond, and started an organization called the Foundation of Human Understanding that was started in Los Angeles, where I was born, that promoted um, a lot of extreme right-wing beliefs. 
Just as some background on Roy Masters and the Foundation of Human Understanding, or FHU, Masters opened a hypnotist institute in Texas in the 1950s. He then formed FHU in Los Angeles in 1961. He had an evangelist radio talk show that was broadcast nationwide, as well as a magazine publication called New Dimension. His messaging to his listeners and to FHU members was in the realm of extreme conservatism. His magazine, which he was editor-in-chief, labeled homosexuality as a, quote, illness, stated that daycare was a, quote, dangerous system pushed by radical feminism, that a woman's role was to be subservient to men, especially her husband, and it likened pro-choice advocates to Nazi propagandists. At the helm of FHU, Roy Masters conducted public exorcisms, made millions off of his exploits, and referred to his followers as Roybots. In 1982, Roy Masters moved the foundation headquarters to the rural town of Grants Pass, Oregon, where about 2,000 supporters immediately followed him. A former county Republican chairman of Grants Pass said Masters' followers quickly began making repeated attempts to take over the Republican Party. Marissa continues speaking here about her childhood, at the point when she was still living in Los Angeles, when the foundation was still headquartered there. And so while I was living in Los Angeles, I was home homeschooled during that that entire time. And I spent a lot of time experiencing a lot of free play. And and like I talked about, we would spend a lot of time in the outdoors as a child. And that was one of my fond memories of being involved in this organization. One of the harder memories was when we moved from Los Angeles to Grants Pass, Oregon, when I was in junior high. Um, Although we were involved in this group that had a lot of expectations as a child, I I was pretty young and not as directly as involved as the adults were at the time. So I did not want to leave Los Angeles to move to Oregon, where the group moved the headquarters um, in Southern Oregon. So during a pretty formative time in my life, had to move from Los Angeles where I had family and friends. And even though I wasn't going to public school, I still had a community and we moved unexpectedly. And that was very difficult as a heading into junior high. But once I started attending the private school with, within the organization, I adjusted to my Oregon life and now identify Oregon as part of my home. It was a river town. So I grew up, started floating the river there. And my time in Oregon and spending time in nature is one of the more grounding ways that I sort of coped with that major life adjustment, hence why spending time in Montana during, you know, major life events made sense and was grounding. So in regards to my relationship with with my family and the organization, as I aged, uh, my beliefs definitely diverged from the organization but my parents remained very politically conservative, sort of trying to understand my parents being conservative Black folks in America and me going off into higher education, and just getting exposed to other beliefs and views and, and getting more grounded in what my own beliefs were. And while also wanting to maintain a relationship with my parents who had vastly different beliefs and weren't always accepting of my Um, differing beliefs. Now that I'm in my 40s, I'm definitely comfortable with owning my own beliefs and my own path. And my mother and I remained close until the day she died, even though she 
was a staunch conservative. And even in the hospital, the last weeks of her life, we watched Fox News together. So I have had an interesting relationship with some of the extreme right-wing beliefs that I'm seeing today. What I grew up with and what I ultimately rejected were some of the beliefs that were, I believe, um, don't transform our nation into a more positive direction. I believe in a person's right to choose. I am horrified by the anti-trans legislation that is being promoted by legislators. I am horrified by the attack on history, telling true history and acknowledging it. That's been always been a issue with our nation. So with my family, I had the unique opportunity of getting to live a life of sort of of developing my own beliefs that were starkly different than my family of origins, than my parents, the generation above me, and that created a lot of challenges, but also created a really beautiful opportunity to know that it's okay. It's absolutely okay within boundaries. It was okay for me. The relationship that I was able to create and the and the boundaries I was able to create worked for me. That does not obviously work for everyone. And I was comfortable with the type of relationship we were able to have. And my mother and I were extremely close. We had a connection on a much deeper level than red or blue, liberal or conservative. We loved nature and music and dancing and so many other things in our family. You know, that's what connected us. And there was a time when how you identified politically wouldn't into friendship or into relationship. And obviously the climate we're in now, that is the case. And so I know it's possible to be close with someone that has different political beliefs within reason and boundaries. You know, obviously there are a lot of unfortunate, hateful, racist, sexist, misogynist beliefs that are unacceptable. And obviously everyone has their own boundaries and that, you know, beliefs that are disgusting or grounded in hate that are just not acceptable or one thing. But with that said, if there's a connection and a mutual respect and consent on different levels, you know, that's something that I learned from growing up in the family that I did. So I've seen that modeled in my life repeatedly, which is why I within reason. And I just, I want to just keep clarifying that, you know, I'm really comfortable with, um, with, with exploring opportunities to kind of break down this us or us versus them. Uh, You know, I don't find that it's a binary. And unfortunately, we're seeing that now. I asked Marissa if she sees through lines from the ideologies that she grew up with within that group, and the far right elements that today are becoming more and more mainstream. Ideologies that are not new by any means just more and more in the public eye. And while many traditional Republicans are even stating that it is indeed a, quote, different breed of conservatism, it seems to be no longer a fringe of the party, but is more and more becoming the narrative and platforms of the party as a whole, from the national level and trickling down to state and civilian level. I know folks personally who are multi-generation Republicans and are admitting that this vein of conservatism that's building from the top down is an extremism that can be characterized as not so much a simple differing in opinion on policy, but rather being rooted in hate and fear of that which is different. 
and focused on stoking the fires of party loyalty rather than moving policy forward that can benefit all of society. Now back to Marissa, sharing the through lines she sees today and the ideologies she grew up amongst. The cult that I belong, that that, that my family was involved with, um, believed. Roy Masters had beliefs and, and encouraged his followers to, to believe a lot of hateful things. I mean, I share these stories because sometimes people don't believe the extent of what I heard growing up. But for example, the rhetoric and the environment that I grew up in was that um, it was a sin to be homosexual, to be gay. And we heard things like if we go to a certain town, the town I ended up going to college in Ashland, we would get AIDS because it was a theater town and gay people lived in that town. When you hear those sorts of messages that are just about one group of people, that's what we heard as kids in this group, in this organization. Does not sound that sounds familiar to what we're hearing today when we talk about bathroom bills or don't say gay or these anti-trans bills. It's hate. It's hateful. And it started a long time before this. It's not new. It's just that we have people in leadership that are now emboldened to speak on it. I grew up in an environment where the expectation of a family was patriarchal and that men were the leads of the family and definitely had more power within the organization. And that's what was taught in my group. And it was grounded in Judeo-Christianity is how it was phrased. On top of that, there was this this message of women as evil. Um, We were also told as young women that to not upset our husbands or our partners or just it's best for wives to not upset their husbands so that the, the order of the family is kept essentially. So um, abortion access, that was a huge topic within the organization that I grew up with that was essentially expected that we participated in anti-abortion marches. There were no other conversations about birth control. We It was abstinence only was the message. And therefore there were a lot of instances of young people that weren't prepared to experience feelings of sexual desire and how to act on it. And I do see that parallel now. You know, there's a generation of us and folks that were in similar sort of environments that have had to figure out, you know, what beliefs are their own and what beliefs came from their parents and and what came from someone that I think had malicious intentions with over the organization and our, you know, folks. So at least that's my perspective. So I um, am alarmed by a lot of the parallels that I see because Roy, Roy Masters started on talk radio. There are other extreme right-wing pundits that have a connection to Roy Masters talk radio organization. And that's a whole large conversation, but I just know from the rhetoric that I heard that I've just talked about to what, you know, the Fox News entity, what they talk about in regards to the hateful rhetoric and hateful fear mongering 
rhetoric is another sort of through line. Sure is, um, you know, a tactic, really. I'm wondering too, you know, to, to touch on what you're saying of this us versus them rhetoric, because that's a space that I am just constantly trying to poke at and discuss and really see that as like the root of our biggest challenges right now. And your experience in your life kind of puts you in this really interesting intersection of that conversation and that we see that narrative growing and heightening each day and that we're really doing ourselves a massive disservice, right? That we are blockading ourselves from getting to a good place of being a healthy society of growing pressures that it's essential for us to be working together. And we're doing exactly the opposite, right? And so we're actually weakening ourselves as a society by creating those polarizations. But I think what I see consistently on a more local community level is that you get more of these connections of humanity and where people recognize that our shared humanity is more powerful than those divides. Of course, not all the time. I know there's (laughs) polarizing divides happening on a very community level. I'm just wondering though, if you could kind of share with us any instances of where you saw walls coming down, of where you saw on a community level creating connections where people watching from the outside may be surprised to see. Um, and, And maybe your background equipped you to navigate being in good relationship with people that had, you know, differing values or views on things. Mm -hmm. In the context of Park County, one of the most transformative experiences I had was doing um, Leadership 49 through MSU Extension, the Park County MSU Extension um, at the time led by Katie Weaver. And it's a nine-month leadership program. The goal of the program, the year I was there, and I don't I can't speak to the, I'm assuming the objectives are the same, um, but was to bring together folks from different entities of Park Park County and to build and grow together. And in my class, we had the opportunity to do visits to different nooks and crannies of Park County for over the nine months and put on projects and get to know the entire county by meeting with folks and hearing their stories. And that was so transformative. And the project that my group did was, I don't remember the exact name, but it was Rural and Urban. We built a concept about bringing a group of kiddos out to a ranch for a day, maybe some kids that lived in town that had never been out to see a working ranch or farm. And that was the idea because what I learned on a personal level and what we learned just by in this group of folks, we had just quite a spectrum of folks with from different backgrounds in that class, but we all loved Park County. We learned from each other tremendously. And I learned about some of the rural parts that I wouldn't have had an opportunity to learn about otherwise, especially the farming and ranch community in regards to the local food being produced in the area. And that was something that there's a disconnect for a lot of folks just where food's getting produced and just sort of feeling that and the power of that. But no, hearing those stories, the folks that are living and breathing within the more rural parts of the county, I think for me was one of the most transformative opportunities and to be embraced 
because of the curiosity that I expressed about how to learn, you know, through their lens. And a big part of what I wanted to see was just sort of see the future of Livingston remain the preciousness that I got to know and love. So by hearing, you can't do that without knowing all of the history. And that includes those that you have access to hear stories from. And being curious with folks that maybe weren't in my immediate circles was what was really trans transformative, just building those relationships that I would not have otherwise been able to build, which I think that Leadership 49 program enabled me to do and ask questions of folks that have been longtime residents of Willis Hall or Clyde Park or spent some time in Cook City to get to know the real significant needs of that community. So really just spending time with folks in intimate settings with genuine curiosity opened the door with a lot of folks. And folks were generally open to getting to know me when there was that genuine curiosity. And then that sort of was was vice versa. So yeah, no, thank you. I mean, that's just shows such a great lesson for all of us, right? Is <laughs> having that curiosity, that want to learn, that want to hear, you know, I feel like what happens a lot now is because I have an assumption of what that person thinks. And that assumption is that they think differently than me. I don't want to know anything about them. I could care less. Right. And then we stop there. I think your approach of how you go forward in life and, and the places you call home is, is such a good message of to have that curiosity, to ask questions, to get to know those people that shape that place. It seems to me that what you're saying is the thought of like, oh, they probably have different political views is not even something that comes in your realm when you're deciding who you want to converse with or ask questions to, yes. right? And yes. like we're in a space right now where too often that is the only thing that, that comes into our mind when we think about reaching out or conversing with somebody else. And it's it's just refreshing to see through your lens of like, what? Now that's, I mean, that's a sidebar thing and maybe something will come up and we'll discuss it. But first and foremost, we're humans who love this place and have a shared love of this place. And we are very different and we celebrate those differences. And yeah, I generally want to know about their challenges in their Mm -hmm. life. And I would hope that they'll return that curiosity. And, And what you painted just now seems like such a beautiful way to build relationships um, and something that we should be duplicating all over the place. So I'm wondering too, um, you had spoken with me on the phone earlier about the circle of community that you connected to um, in your time in Park County. And you were able to kind of name this like plethora of (laughs) this kind of like cornucopia of all different types of folks. So I'm wondering if you can just kind of paint a little bit of that picture of who you connected with in a community. I'm chuckling because when my, when Aaron and I, my partner and I visit Montana, he jokes, it's like, you're famous when you come back to Livingston, you know, everyone, but the work that I did was so public. I did get to know so many people. So I connected with obviously my customers that I got to know who I loved and then my, my professional colleagues, but I also had my private life that a lot of folks didn't know much about because I was a very, I had a a pretty public job, but I also met some of the best people in my life while I lived in Montana. Some of my closest friends and my best friends. As an adult, making best friends is really, it surprised me that I connected because I've lived in a few different places as, as an adult, but the people that I met there 
And it's such a spectrum because of the different relationships that I had throughout my different journey in Montana. So, and you just sort of named it at the top of the sort of connection were people that also shared a mutual love for Montana and the nature and beauty of it. And also considered the community sacred and a place that they wanted to be good, good stewards of. So having that shared sort of desire to take care of the land and be good stewards of it, that sort of like, like-minded mentality or folks that I was drawn to that wanted to just be good to the, the future of, of Park County and see Livingston's future just be successful and thrive. And so I, I connect a lot with folks that were doing community work. Um, and there's a lot of folks doing that <laughs> in that community. So carry on people. But I also could walk into one of my favorite bars, the Whiskey Creek, and say hi to one of my favorite bartenders. What I like to highlight about my time in Montana are the best friends that I made there are all people that sort of blaze their own path for living in Montana. People that are dreamers and seekers, just extreme individuals that are blazing their own path in life. And I felt that energy in that town significantly where you can be your most authentic self. And I know I could be my most authentic self there. Real authenticity and honesty and that shared connection and love for nature and just being with it. And that's my community. Um, That's, I think, the best way to frame it. I just love all my people in Montana. In a previous conversation I had with Marissa, she specified how those who she considered friends in her community of Park County were indeed from many different walks. Those involved in community and conservation work, as she mentioned, but also local business owners, multi-generation ranchers, fellow live music lovers, folks young, old, and yes, from all political standpoints. Something that Marissa is tapping into extra strong this year is sharing her own story publicly, including through a blog on Substack. This includes her truth and perspective around her upbringing and other elements of her life. Typically on this podcast, I conclude my conversations by asking folks if they have any calls to action for listeners. For this, I specifically asked Marissa about her call to action for others to share their story and the value that that action can provide. I'm sharing my stories publicly for several reasons, but one, because I have the strength and capacity and community support to do it right now in my life. Two, because if I don't tell it, someone else will, and I want my story to be my story. And that's where my call to action is, is for folks to like yourself and thank you for being someone that witnesses stories so beautifully. It's intentional that I'm here with you sharing my story because of the way that you capture stories and frame them and your intentionality of why you're sharing stories to just serve community. And that's aligned with my mission. And I think telling stories and uplifting stories and honoring them are what we have to, I think, shift us in a more humane direction in our society. Like hearing stories of pain and suffering that people are experiencing yet still carrying on. It's pretty remarkable. The stories I heard through my work and I, the different types of work that I've done over the years, but particularly my work in, in Livingston, it changed my life hearing 
there's stories of survival, of hope, the difficult moments, the broken relationships that people had during their most vulnerable moments. And their stories matter. But with that said, so telling stories also takes tremendous vulnerability and courage and the potential of someone not receiving it well or being criticized. When I started sharing my story about my childhood and the group that I was born into, not everyone received me speaking publicly well. And I did have to navigate some difficult conversations to help people understand why I was speaking publicly. With that said, the overwhelming majority of folks that reached out, a lot of it was sentiments like, wow, I didn't know that you felt the same way that I did. I have never told anyone how I felt, but seeing you tell your story makes me like, can we talk? I don't feel so alone anymore. Things like that. Or wow, you framed our experience in this cult in a way that I have been, have never framed before. And your new framing has been helpful. Thank you for speaking up for all of us that are still too vulnerable to speak up. Things like that are what I are what I've heard. So if you have the strength and the capacity for whatever reason you might want to tell a story, you know, I encourage folks to do it. But it's not for everyone. It's not everyone's thing to do. And I recognize that. But Um, I do call out folks that do have the capacity. I do think it's a responsibility to share stories of people that might be vulnerable and that can't so that we can shift our, our perspective on treating each other, knowing that there are stories that we probably don't know about each other that might be happening that people aren't able to even share because it's too painful. It is a release. It's healing for me personally. So I'm talking about, you know, sharing to help others, but it also helps you know, personal level, just to sometimes some of my life experiences, I don't sometimes believe them unless I tell them, you know, just because they've, some of them have been so traumatic or just different or whatever. It's just say it out, out loud for me has been healing as well. Yeah. I have a great deal of admiration and respect and knowing that that vulnerable space that it is to do that. It's, it's nothing that one should do haphazardly. Um, and also that it can, you know, be at any scale, right, of sharing that, you know, folks are like, oh, well, nothing monumental has happened to me. You know, we all have experience, we have challenges um, that you might be surprised that your story is worth sharing, um, yes. your experience with something, your challenge with something. Um, and then it doesn't have to be this big public, you know, sharing of the story. It can just be in private conversation or, or with a family member, enlightening them to an experience and a truth that you experienced. And I just think the more that we share those truths, it doesn't have to be on, you know, any large platform in the public media realm. It's just the power that it can have of just sharing our truths with each other in a genuine way. So well Um, put. So well put. Yes. And I'm wondering a final question. I could talk with you for days, uh, (laughs) but be mindful. Um, you know, on this topic of polarization, divisions, are there any calls to action that you have? Um, I, I really do find that you have these intersections in your life that I think can really enlighten folks to how we can navigate. Um, I think everybody's trying to figure out how do we get away from this polarization? It's so easy. It's our new natural human 
tendency to want to get pulled into that, right? But we need to really fight that temptation. And so I think your your experience really brings some valuable insight for folks on how we can navigate that. If there's any thoughts that you have from what you have seen, from what you do see, from what you hope to see of navigating out of this polarization as much as possible. (laughs) I think there's a couple of there's layers to the work that needs to be done. The The master's program that I'm pursuing in family therapy, it's um, a systemic look at treating um, challenges in families. So it's, and I mean, so I say that to say there's, like, there's so many systemic layers of what has led to the polarization. It can be overwhelming to think about how we <laughs> address it. But I think first and foremost, and I will always say this, as a nation, we must be much more honest and open about the origins of our society in regards to the slaughtering of, of Indigenous folks and the enslavement of Black folks. Speaking about that more openly and the implications that those realities have on how we can treat each other so inhumanely. So that's just one framing that I feel that's really important to me when there's efforts to to ban talking about true history and the origins of our nation and and the ways in which we've built our society. We see our willingness to be so divided, born out of we're not that far out of the civil rights movement. You know, there was we we saw a nation where there was hate driving so many policies and so many beliefs. And I, you know, we've shifted from different um, vulnerable groups and we're still seeing our ability as humans to target a group of people we don't understand or don't want to get to know, or it's it's not easy to do, but I've had the luxury of getting to know people from so many different walks of life and backgrounds that I believe everyone's story, you know, and I validate everyone's background because I know I just have just my life experience has led led me to that. So when I hear people making legislation about people maybe they've never met or experienced they've never had, whether that's being pregnant or knowing someone, loving someone that's trans or or gay or someone that's um, had to make the decision to end a pregnancy, whatever it might be, when someone doesn't know someone personally who's had to make those decisions yet wants to make decisions for those people, it is alarming. I guess my call is for folks to pause for a minute and and wonder about the stories of those people they don't know what might be on their hearts. A lot of people don't know that my mom died in my arms and that I have a brother that was murdered a year and a half after that that I didn't share. So that, I mean, those are stories that people might be walking around with and you don't know, but a lot of people just see me as a progressive black woman, but no, I mean, my story is so much more than that. And I'm telling my story. So people realize that we all have these experiences and exposure to people that we're all just want community and to be loved and to have fun and, you know, have our basic needs met and whatever else, you know, might be important to you. But I think getting to know people beyond what you might assume their identity makes them 
there's so much value. I just love listening and asking questions about getting to know people. So being curious, like I've talked about, and that's why the therapy field is ideal for me because a lot of it is being curious about people's lives and helping, you know, through that curiosity, explore meaning making and what's meaningful to people. So you learn about people when you get curious, I guess is the message. And then that can be, that's transformative about how you make decisions in your life. And I know I can think about the folks that are, you know, ranching in Park County, my friends that are educators at UC Santa Cruz. And when I'm sort of thinking about what's important, I know that that's different, like different priorities for different people in different times in their lives, different parts of the world. But there are also a lot of core connections between what we all want and community love connection. An immense amount of gratitude to Marissa for sharing her story, her experiences, and her truths. I agree with her when she says that it's through sharing our stories that we can move forward in a more humane way, a more connected, and therefore a stronger way in our society, on a local scale or on a global one. By recognizing the endless facets that exist in all the concepts of our world, we'll know not to respond with blanket generalizations, third-hand assumptions, or oversimplified solutions. I believe it will only benefit us to be more curious and open to learning those other angles, experiences, other challenges, and that it's okay, and even incredibly important, to listen to and engage with, and yes, even support those we differ from. What I hear from Marissa that she's doing, which is something I'm always working to do, is to build that nuanced reality of our world that does exist. So we're not painting these blanket statements over entire groups of people or identities or professions. That, I believe, will only serve us in the best of ways if we let our personal human narratives rise above any top-down messages telling us to shake our fists at or turn our backs on one another. And maybe it feels good to be part of a larger group to know that we have people backing us in our corner. It sure is the easier way to go. But I fear that we've gone too far into that corner where we've generally lost the ability to challenge those who are in our camp. How do we bring back that essential component of respectful, critical thinking? Also just a note that next year in November of 2024, Montana will hold an election for one of its Senate seats. This race will be between a Republican candidate and incumbent Senator Democrat John Tester. This election can sway who has Senate majority on the national level between Democrats and Republicans. So on a national level, all eyes will be watching Montana's Senate race for next year. That also means a lot of money will be thrown at that race on a national level. All this is, of course, not to suggest who to vote for, but just to stay alert and aware that there will be mountains of effort put on this election race. So a lot of very charged messaging pitting one against the other will be put in front of us. So we'll have to make an extra effort to look past all the powerful messaging of pitting us against each other and hateful and divisive rhetoric to really find out who's going to best serve our communities. There are endless challenges in this world, in our lives, now and looking down the road into the future. So when we are at the end of our own personal journeys in our lives, 
and we look back and see all of that effort and energy that we put into tearing one another down or making life even harder on some groups of people, personally, I think that will seem pretty regrettable. When instead, we could put all of that valuable time and effort into working together, finding ways to respect our differences, and rather than always just being in defense mode or tear each other down mode, actually advancing programs, policies, connections, and solutions for the things that really matter in the big picture of our world. You can find Marissa's written blog online, where she shares her story from her upbringing and connects it to her life today. The blog is called Breaking the Cycle and can be found on Substack, a self-publishing writing site. You can find it at the link in this episode's show notes. You can also connect with her on Instagram at Marissa Hearts You. You can find other links in this episode's show notes to things mentioned here. For more information, to support, or if you yourself are in need of such services. These entities include HRDC, Aspen, the Abuse Support Prevention Education Network, Montana Veteran Affairs, Southwest Chemical Dependency, Livingston Food Resource Center, and the Montana Food Bank Network. This episode is made possible by support from Metalark Guide Co. Metalark Guide Co. came into being as a space for connection and transformation, hosting river trips and retreats that embrace the mountains, prairies, and rivers of Montana and Wyoming. They weave together elements of personal development, healing modalities, and adventures with the intent that you will find deeper and meaningful connection to place, self, and community. You can follow them on Instagram at meadowlarkguide.co and find more info on their website, also meadowlarkguide.co. This episode was produced on the homelands of the Bitterroot Salish, Kalispe or Pondere, and Kootenai peoples, as well as other indigenous tribes who interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years, and still do today. Thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate it if you're able to share this episode with others and subscribe to the Stories for Action podcast. Find out more about all of our work, including films and storytelling workshops at storiesforaction.org, and check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Stories for Action. Thank you so much for being a part of our community where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to create human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.